Welcome, welcome back, Eigen families. So we're glad to see you guys once again. Mm-hmm. And first off, if you guys have not done so yet, make sure you like, share, comment, and subscribe. Um, check us out, of course, the websites, eigenbros.com, uh, eigenbros on Twitter, eigenbros on Instagram, eigenbros2 on TikTok. And then also, guys, thank you once again to the patrons. We really greatly appreciate it. Um, you, know, you know, we couldn't do without you guys. And also, if you want to become a patron, uh, make sure you check out patreon.com slash eigenbros. Mm-hmm. So today, guys, you uh, we have a special guest today. You may even recognize him uh, from the Wolfram Physics Project. Um, he is the research, research fellow at Cambridge University. Um, and he also contributes to wolframphysics.org. And he is the co-founder of the Wolfram Physics Project. Uh, welcome, everyone. It is Jonathan Garrard. Cool. Hi. Thanks so much for inviting me. Yeah, Jonathan, it's great to of have course. you on. Um, let's uh, kind of get yeah. into it here. Yeah, we were saying, uh, yeah, how you basically reached out to us through YouTube because we did a we did a um, a kind of real, I'd say, you know, kind of loose episode on the full, the Wolfram Physics Project, and Person- you know, there were there were a few maybe gripes you had, I guess, about the. Uh, <laughs> The, the some of the some of the things we said about it, maybe some things you can clear up for us here today. Yeah, but I think, uh, well, uh, yeah. I think overall you were pretty My nice rec- about it, Jonathan. Yeah, I think I, I left basically quite a rude YouTube comment no. on the video, uh, which I which I later somewhat regretted. Um, Not but at all. yeah, you guys were gracious enough to invite me along to 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 be interviewed. So that was thank you so much. And yeah, we greatly accepting. appreciate uh, you coming here, man. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so I guess, Jonathan, to start it off, we kind of wanted to um, ask you a little bit of basic questions. So just like, you know, we're physicists, um, you have, I, do you have a math or a um, computer science background, Jonathan? Uh, so I, I'm a, I, I have a math background. Right. It's applied mathematics, correct? Uh, yeah, I sort of drifted in that direction by accident. My, I mean, like my, my bachelor's degree was in pure mathematics, and then I did a, a master's and PhD in sort of mathematical physics. So I, ah. I, I drifted more applied. What, was there a reason why you chose to go that direction rather than the pure math side? Yeah, it's an interesting question. Um, I guess, it okay, it was somewhat accidental, but it was also just the... the um, the kinds of questions I happen to be interested in and the branches of mathematics that I happen to be interested in happen to be ones which were directly applicable to mathematical physics. So I got really interested in areas like, uh, you know, differential geometry, functional analysis, and kind of the, the, the mathematical foundations of, of general relativity. And so then when it was when it came time to kind of pick a research area, I could have done something that was like super pure and abstract, but it kind of seemed more interesting to do something that was related to the foundations of GR. And that kind of that was like the gateway drug into mathematical physics i see so a man of relativity relativity is really interesting huh it is yeah once you get a hold of that einstein you know that einstein version of relativity you still you kind of like get hooked on it i think Um, but yeah yeah, that's really cool man um could you maybe explain some of the basics so you know with wolfram's project we start with these structures called hypergraphs right so they're nodes basically that have connections and with those nodes that connect, and if you guys are unfamiliar, make sure you check out the first podcast. We kind of give a, a summary of these things, and then you know you can also see what Jonathan clarifies in this podcast. But going back, so we have the nodes that are just basically points, you can think of them as, that are connected by these, um, I don't know what you call them, edges or connections, maybe edges for two or more, but 
Yeah, so they're basically these nodes connected to lines or connections that formulate a space, a hypergraph space. Could you explain maybe um, how you can connect that hypergraph space to the physical space that we're actually used to in, let's say, reality? Right, right. Okay, that's a very important first question. How do we connect the model to reality? Um, So uh, what I would say is that, okay, so we know or we've suspected for a long time um, in like broadly in the field of, of fundamental physics that this approximation or this idea that we have that space and space time are smooth and continuous is really only an approximation that it kind of has to break down at some point and the reason for that is we know that there's this particular length scale the so-called Planck length or Planck time scale at which sort of relativistic effects and quantum mechanical effects start to become comparable, right? So relativistic effects happen at sort of high energies, quantum mechanical effects happen at low distance scales, and there's a point where these two scales cross over, and that's sort of the Planck scale. And so to describe the structure of space and time at that scale or below, you really need a theory of quantum gravity, and, you know, we don't have one of those yet. Um, And so... Everything above that scale we know is well approximated by thinking of space and time as being smooth and continuous. But below that scale, people have started to think in, in it, it's interesting there's been a kind of convergent evolution of these ideas where people working in many different fields of sort of quantum gravity have ended up converging on the same idea that maybe space-time is fundamentally discrete so like in string theory uh you know there are these notions of entanglement networks that people like uh, mark van ramsdonk and sean carroll have been investigating there are ideas of spin networks in loop quantum gravity there are uh, you know r- corresponding ideas in, in other fields like causal set theory and causal dynamical triangulation so, so lots of different approaches to quantum gravity have kind of ended up with this view that space-time must somehow be fundamentally discrete. But all of these different approaches, they start by essentially considering dynamics in a continuous space or a continuous space-time and then discretizing it. So, you, you know, you, 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 you solve your equations of motion or something for a, for a smooth uh, continuous space-time and then you construct a discrete sort of mesh approximation to it or something. That's how something like causal dynamical triangulation would work. Um, and it's kind of obvious why people have done that because we know how to define dynamics over these smooth spaces. We can just write down some some equations, write down some partial differential equations and solve them, uh, you know, solve the equations of motion and you, you get the dynamics. What no one has really done is start with the assumption or start with a discrete structure as the fundamental object and build up to the continuum. And the reason no one's done that, or one of the reasons no one has done that is because it's really hard to define dynamics on a discrete space because you can't, def- you know, all the standard approaches to doing physics that involve, you know, equations of motion and Lagrangians and, and you know, least action stuff, they don't work. You can't define PDEs over, over a network in any kind of reasonably straightforward way. You can't define equations of motion for a network in any reasonable straightforward way because they're discrete. So what you need is a, is a radically new way of thinking about how to get dynamics and that's really what the Wolfram model is. So it's it's starting from this assumption that is n- becoming less controversial over time, that maybe space is, is inherently discrete. But rather than trying to obtain the discrete approximation from a continuous one, it's assuming the discrete structure kind of from the very beginning, if that makes sense, and then defining dynamics in terms of, you know, substitution rules and things, which we'll talk about later. But that's the that's the basic idea. That's really interesting. So, um, yeah, I like that. Um that's 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 interesting though because if you if you start from discrete space, um, how do you go about actually 
amazing. I mean, can you give an example of how you actually figure out how to get around some of these issues with um, starting with a discrete space rather than starting continuous and then making it discretized? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so um, I think a good example is, uh, say, molecular dynamics versus fluid mechanics. So we know that um, in reality, you know, fluids are not um, they're not really smooth. They're not really continuous. I mean, they, they, they behave like they like they are. And for like practical fluid dynamics or engineering problems or whatever, we treat them as continuous. We solve uh, you know, partial differential equations like the Navier-Stokes equations or the Euler equations that describe the fluid. But we know deep down that actually if we look with a powerful enough microscope, it's just a bunch of discrete molecules bouncing around. And then there's a kind of complicated problem of kinetic theory that tells you how you go from the discrete molecular dynamics in order to obtain the continuous fluid mechanics. And there's, there's this whole complicated mathematical derivation called the Chapman-Enskog expansion that lets you essentially make that transition. You start from the Boltzmann equation that describes the discrete molecules. And by doing this complicated expansion, you end up with the, with the Navier-Stokes equations of fluid dynamics. And that's how the Navier-Stokes equations are kind of derived in, 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 in the context of, of statistical physics. So in a sense, what we're trying to do is the analogous thing, but for space-time. So we start from something that's a bit like molecular dynamics. So just like in molecular dynamics, you have rules that say, you know, I have some cluster of molecules and then they interact in some way and I get a, you know, a cluster of molecules in a different configuration. We have ex exactly the same kind of thing. So we have, a, we have a hypergraph, as you say, that represents our space. And then we have rules that just say, I have a piece of the hypergraph that looks like this and I replace it with a piece of hypergraph that looks like that. And that's kind of a very minimal model for dynamics of these kinds of th systems. And then in a certain class of cases, you know, you, you can start to define things like the Boltzmann function, but for, you know, hypergraph nodes rather than for molecules. And that means that in a restricted class of cases, you can do something that's very much like the derivation of fluid mechanics from the molecular dynamics. You can derive continuous equations and continuous laws of motion just from these discrete hypergraph transformation rules. And the really phenomenal thing is that in at least a large class of cases, those continuous uh, sort of like the, the analog of the fluid equations, but for these hypergraphs, turn out to be the Einstein field equations for general relativity. And that's kind of that that realization was one of the key things that made us realize that this this approach might actually be a fruitful way of thinking about quantum gravity. Mm. So that actually brings me to an interesting point about um, the Wolfram model here, Jonathan, is that, you know, I see all these real cool things that kind of, that you guys will say will come out of this theory. But as a physicist who kind of is more, um, the, the model's very abstract for me. So I try to keep it very close to, um, you know, the, the reality of the reality of things. And I can't really sometimes make the connection with the abstraction that it seems the model has to, you know, uh, the reality of this situation. So it's like, um, I guess, for example, would be just even with space. So if we're going back to space again, you know, I see these real intricate hypergraphs, you know, these, these like membrane kind of structures that look like, you know, these neuronal, you know, connections in a brain, let's say. And then I try to think, how does that actually connect to actual space? Because, you know, when we see space, you know, we think of it as space-time. I know the Wolfram treats time in a separate sense, kind of. But, um, you know, we think of space as a three-dimensional, you know, I don't even know. You can maybe think of it as even a bubble or something, <laughs> if we want. Let's say that. A bubble, of, a bubble of space. So then I try to think, how does that actually... How, do, how does the Wolfram picture, picture model, yeah. 
match up with that. I don't really see it because it's like, you know, in the space time that we have, we have, you know, metrics, let's say, for example, that can tell us tell us how space time curves and whatnot, you know, when there's mass in, involved. In the Wolfram model, let's say if we have the space hypergraph, I don't even really understand how the particles fit in there or or mass or just like what what is a connection there? Can you maybe bring it down to earth what that connection is? Yes. No. Okay. Excellent question. But it has there are many parts to it, um, and, and so uh, yeah, I, I, everything I've just I've said so far has been very abstract. And you're right. You know, if we if we want to talk about physics rather than just you know pure mathematics, we have to make these these connections. So um, yeah. Okay. So in t- so in the in the formal okay, it, it's used the kind of technical vocabulary. The idea is that these hypergraphs are representing re- are approximations to Riemannian manifolds or space-like hypersurfaces, which is just those are just the mathematical structures we use to describe ordinary physical space. As you say, we conventionally think of that as being three-dimensional. At least those of us who aren't string theorists or whatever. Um, and so, as you say. You know, you normally have in both space and in space time, you have a, a notion of a metric. And the significance of the metric is that it lets you, if you have a pair of points, you can, the metric lets you, det- you can project this metric tensor along that, uh, you know, across those pair of points, and you can work out the length of the path. And so, uh, and there are a bunch of these different kind of differential geom- uh, geometric constructions that you can do in space and in space time that let you determine, as, as you say, things like path distances, things like curvatures, um, things like uh, torsion. All these different kinds of quantities, and so you ask a very important question, which is how can they map into the case of hypergraphs? Um, and the answer is that for each one of these kind of concepts in differential geometry, there is a direct translation. Um, and when once you learn the translation, it, it all becomes somewhat intuitive. So, like the analog of a metric. Okay, so if if you have a network. Uh, you can solve what is often called the shortest paths problem for that network. So you can, if you if you have a pair of points, a pair of nodes, uh, you can find the shortest path between those nodes, which just means you know a, a, a continuous path between those two points, which traverses the fewest number of edges, in a sort of as an intermediate um, thing. And so uh, that gives you a notion of a, a, something that limits to a to a continuum distance, at least for some networks. So as the network gets very very large. The distance quantity that you would get by solving the shortest paths problem converges to the same distance that you would get uh, by computing it using a Riemannian metric tensor, which is kind of the standard way you would do it in, in continuous geometry. Um, so actually, defining distances is not so hard. Um, defining curvatures is a bit more complicated, uh, and it's a bit, it's a bit more complicated because um, essentially, it, with an ordinary space, with an ordinary manifold. Uh, the notion of dimension is always fixed. And this is kind of a postulate of, of differential geometry. In fact, uh, dimension is what's called a local invariant. It means that you, every connected piece of your space has to have the same dimension. With a network, that isn't necessarily true. So um, in ordinary physical space, okay, suppose you wanted to ask, uh, how, do we, you know, how do we know we're in three-dimensional space rather than four-dimensional or two-dimensional space? One way we could do it is by you could take a sort of a, a bunch of gas molecules and you could just diffuse them out, and and you you see you grow out some kind of sphere of di- of diffused gas, and you could ask, okay, how does the volume of the sphere of diffused gas scale proportionate to the to the radius of the of the sphere? And so if you were doing this in two dimensions, your your sphere of gas would really be a circle, so it would grow like pi r squared. If you do it in three dimensions, it's going to grow like the volume of a sphere, four thirds pi r cubed. And in general, if you do it in D dimensions, it'll grow like R to the D. 
So by looking at the volumes of, of a kind of, of a diffused ball, if you like, of, of stuff, uh, and looking at the exponent, d, in, in that expansion, you can work out the dimension of the space. This is what's called the, the Hausdorff dimension of the space. And you, and you can do exactly the same thing in a graph. So you can, you can look at a point in a graph, a, a node in a graph, and you can look at all the nodes that are adjacent to it, and all the nodes that are adjacent to those nodes, and the nodes are adjacent to those, and so on. You grow out some ball of radius r, and you just ask how many nodes are there inside that ball. And again, if the, if the network is approximate or the hypergraph is approximating a d-dimensional space, it will grow like r to the d. The bit where it gets interesting is that in differential geometry, there is a correction term to this expansion. So, so th 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 these, these volumes of, of balls are given by essentially a power series expansion for the metric tensor. And that power series expansion, it, it, its leading order is, um, is r to the power d. Uh, but it has subleading terms. It has a subleading term to the power of uh, proportional to r to the d plus two, and the coefficient of that term is proportional to the curvature of the of the manifold. Um, and specifically in in the Riemannian geometry case, it's proportional to what's called the Ricci scalar curvature, which is uh, an important quantity in relativity and other things. And so that means we can use that same construction to define an analog of Ricci curvature for hypergraphs, for, for networks and hypergraphs. We just we do the same expansion. We look at a, a discrete ball of radius r, and we look at the subleading correction. And so, so long as you know the continuum dimension that you're supposed to be approximating, you can therefore work out the curvature at any point. And so, and there's, you can get even more sophisticated information. So like there's, you know, there are notions of Ricci curvature tensors, which are sort of directional versions of curvature. They tell you how curved the manifold is, not just as a scalar, but actually projected in some direction. And you can do the same, and again, okay, in the continuous case, you can infer that by looking at the growth rate of a, not of a ball, but actually of a tube that's projected in some direction. And again, just like, just like that in the, in the network, you can, you can kind of grow out a continuous, you can grow out a discrete tube and you can, you can measure how it, you know, how its volume scales. Mm -hmm. um, so a, a large part of this project has actually been taking these concepts that exist in ordinary physics or in ordinary geometry, continuous geometry, and kind of producing intuitive hypergraph translations of them. But the nice thing is that the, those translations can be produced. And as the hypergraph grows really big, they become, they essentially converge to their continuous analogs, just like when you, uh, you know, if you have like a finite, I don't know, finite difference approximation to a partial differential equation, and you make the, you know, the, the, the uh, difference stencils really, really small, it converges to the same value as the, you know, as the continuous integral or whatever that you're approximating. It's exactly the same thing. Very, very interesting, man. Hmm. Um, you're convincing me the more you talk about it. <laughs> because uh, yeah, I, it, makes me, it makes me think um, I need to, um, maybe the connection is harder to see because of you need to know more about network theory or what would you call it, graph theory? Yeah, gra graph theory specific. Well, gra graph theory in general, and and also there's a similarly named field which is network science, which is a bit different. So 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 I mean, graph theory is essentially is, is you know it's a field of math and computer science, um, and so that's where a lot of these concepts come from. But th we've also borrowed some techniques from from network science, which is about how you analyze networks or graphs that are really really big. Um, and so that that's obviously something that we care about because we want to we care about these questions about what happens when these when you basically take the limit as these things goes to go to infinity and that's really hard to do in general. Um, and then there's also this other field which is also connected, which is discrete differential geometry, which is which again we've made heavy use of, which is essentially all about this question of how do you translate the ideas of differential geometry to uh, spaces that aren't continuous that actually are fundamentally discrete. So people have done that for. Um, these quite abstract topological things called simplicial complexes, uh, but but we we are doing it on a much more down to earth scale. You know, basically defining differential geometry on on graphs and networks. 
Very interesting. So you're getting a lot of these similar mathematical equations, let's say, that are arising out of this Wolfram theory that you're seeing parallels some of the things that already exist in physics or you're finding things like the curvature and, you know, uh, dimensionality. Um, and actually, that that makes me think of another interesting point that I had. Did, did you have a question, Juan? No, no, Okay, sorry. Um, yeah, that makes me think of another thing that was interesting um, that I saw in your theory that I wanted maybe you'd expound some more, although you talked about it some. Um, you you mentioned the dimensions, the way you find the dimensions by actually, you know, taking that ball of gas, let's say, and then allowing it to spread out in space. So the interesting thing that Wolfram's theory um, also predicts is uh, fractional dimensions. So a fractional dimension, I mean, uh, we, me and Juan talked about this on the first podcast. What does that even mean? <laughs> right, right. Okay, excellent question. Um, so th- this uh, this is a concept that's been investigated in uh, lots of different contexts. But I mean, most people will have encountered it. Maybe if, if they've encountered it, they will have, they will have uh, encountered these concepts of fractals. So um, th- th- these are sort of geometrical structures that have, uh, I think, entered at least part of the popular consciousness just because they form quite pretty pictures. So a lot of people will have seen pictures of like the Mandelbrot set or Juilliard sets or things, things like that. And, and uh, or, you know, even these kind of more boring ones, which are like, you know, Coke curves or these space filling curves that which have like self-similarity patterns to them. Um, and the reason they're called fractals or the, the, um, the etymology of the term fractal comes from fractional dimension. So the 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 the, um, the unifying characteristic that all these fractals have is that their dimension is a bit funky. So if you take the Mandelbrot set or something like it, uh, its dimension will actually vary depending on which part of it you're looking at, and it's not necessarily an integer. And what that means is that um, okay, I, I briefly mentioned this concept of Hausdorff dimensionality, but maybe it's worth just saying a little bit more about what that is. So Hausdorff dimensionality is the fancy word for exactly what I was talking about before, this idea you you measure dimension by just looking at the volume of, of you know, how, how the volume of something grows. So like when we say a, a line is one dimensional, it's because its volume grows linearly as you scale it. But with a square, it grows quadratically as you scale it. And so we say that a square is two dimensional with a cube, it grows cubically. So we say that it's three dimensional and so on. Um, but because these are just exponents of some variable and because you can define it, you don't necessarily need to define it. You, 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 we have a notion of non-integer exponents. Uh, it's possible for you to define geometrical constructions that don't actually have an integer scaling law. And these are, these form what are called fractals. And so this is, um, this notion of Hausdorff dimension is one notion of dimension. The, more, the notion of dimension that I guess people are more, maybe more directly familiar with is often what's called topological dimension, which just means the num. basically it means the number of um, independent vectors or, or uh, orthogonal vectors that you need to span a space, right? right? So, uh, you know, when we say that, th- this, that our physical space seems to be three-dimensional, it means that, it, that just means that there are three directions, right? You go that way, that way, that way, and as far as we know, there isn't, you know, everything else is just a linear combination of those. Um, and so clearly by definition, topological dimension has to be an integer. So that's, I think, partly why people get a bit confused because they think, well, how, you know, how can you possibly get a non-integer number of dimensions? Cause the, you have to have an integer number of these, these vectors, but these fractals have this interesting property, which is that, in fact, this is in fact, the, the formal mathematical definition of a fractal is a, is a space where the Hausdorff dimension is not the same as the topological dimension. In fact, the, the Hausdorff dimension in a fractal is strictly larger than the top. So it, it in most like well-behaved, nice geometrical spaces, 
the Hausdorff dimension and the topological dimension are the same, right? In ordinary Euclidean space that we, you know, that, that we generally think about, they are identical. That you know, the square is is both two dimension has both two topological dimensions and two Hausdorff dimensions. But in these fractals, it's not as well behaved. The Hausdorff dimension is is different. It can vary. It can be. It cannot be an integer. But the topological dimension is always fixed and an integer. So when we talk about non-integer dimensions, we're talking about non-integer Hausdorff dimensions. And so you get non-integer dimensions for exactly the same reason that you would in a fractal. It's just that the that the scaling relation is such that the, we, we get a power law, or we, sorry, we get an exponential law, but where the exponent is not, it just happens not to be an integer. Um, and the reason for that is just that these hypergraphs are much less constrained than ordinary manifolds, right? So ordinary manifolds, ordinary uh, continuous spaces have very, very strong mathematical axioms that essentially enforce that the dimensions have to be, you know, nice and well-behaved and integer and so on. Uh, with a hypergraph, it's kind of like the wild west of geometry. There, there, there's no there's no such, you know, a strong set of axioms. So some hypergraphs will correspond to nice manifold-like structures, but many more of them will correspond to, to sort of more fractally things with weird Hausdorff dimension. And uh, so this this sort of uh, prediction, such as such, such as it is, is that given that fractals and and, and you know, non-integer Hausdorff dimensions seem to be quite common in hypergraphs, it's not unreasonable to assume that if this is a good model for physics, what's probably happening is that we have a universe that is a very good approximation to three spatial dimensions, you know, four, four space-time dimensions, but where, just like in the Mandelbrot set, there can be these small kind of non-integer uh, disturbances. So it may be the case that, you know, in some regions of space, it's actually not exactly three-dimensional, it's maybe 2.999-dimensional, and in some other places, it's 3.0001-dimensional, which just means that there's a slight discrepancy in the in how these volumes would, you know, how a volume of a ball might scale. Uh, and that's kind of interesting because that you know we think that we've started to um compute what the kind of potential observational consequences of those kind of pockets of different dimension might be uh, and it seems to be a fairly robust and potentially testable aspect of the theory this idea that, that dimensions are not don't have to just be integers everywhere that you can actually have small corrections to the dimension in, in different regions of space that, sorry that that's my as that's the first attempt at the answer yeah that's a really good no, um good explanation um, yeah it leads me to a couple of questions because um I'm trying to think, why would you even um, want to invoke Hausdorff in the first place? Because, you know, if we live in a topological universe or top uh, universe topological dimension, um, it's like, why would you not want to just stick with that? But I guess maybe is it that Hausdorff is the only way to be able to measure these things in or just another technique, I guess, maybe? Or is there some kind of also is there some kind of relation between Hausdorff and topological dimensions that can be translated uh, right, right. Okay, great question. So, so in again, in well-behaved spaces, yes, they can be translated. So, so in 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 ordinary manifold structures and so on, they are in fact they are the same notion of dimension. Uh, you know, manifolds are, are well-behaved precisely because all these different notions of dimension that you could define all happen to coincide. Um, so, the, as for why we use Hausdorff dimension instead of topological, well, a because it's more re directly relevant for curvature calculations. So, you know, in, in the calculation I gave, I, I mentioned before, where you you compute the curvature in terms of the subleading term of this expansion, uh, the, the dimension that appears in that equation is the Hausdorff dimension, not the topological dimension, um, which is important if you try and if apply geometrical techniques to to fractals and define curvatures of fractals and things. The other reason it is, which I guess you kind of alluded to, uh, is that it's just in in networks and in hypergraphs, it happens to be way easier to measure topological dimension. So, sorry, it happens to be way easier to measure Hausdorff dimension. Measuring topological dimension is kind of hard because you need to have a notion, you need basically to import ideas from linear algebra 
and you have to essentially treat the you know the hypergraph of the network as being like a vector space. So you can then define you know notions of orthogonality or linear independence, and you can talk about spanning sets and bases and things. And it's not even immediately clear how you would define a vector, right? In a in a hypergraph, right? You at some level you could say, okay, a vector is just a path. But then it's like, okay, well now I have to define the notion of a dot product, right? I have to define inner products between vectors, and it turns out. For subtle reasons, there is no, there isn't actually a unique way to do that. Um, there are spaces in which you can. There is, there, so there are particular hypergraphs which are well approximated by vector spaces, but there are many more that aren't. And so, even defining a consistent notion of a dot product is really, really difficult. And, and you kind of, you need that in order to define topological dimension. Whereas Hausdorff dimension, as I say, all you need is just the notion of a volume of a ball and the notion of a radius. And that's very easy to get in a network. So, uh, so Hausdorff dimension just happens to be the easiest thing to compute and also happens to be the thing which is relevant for, uh, for deriving general relativity, for re- you know, relevant for space-time curvature and things. Very interesting. So I guess one more last question about the Hausdorff thing sure. <laughs> so we can move on. But I just want to... Just finish it off with this. So with that, you're saying that the Hausdorff dimensionality, if it matches w- with the topological one in good and well-behaved spaces, you, you, you mentioned that there could be pockets of different dimensionality or different dimension, uh, Hausdorff dimensionality, even in our space. But is it preferable for you to look for a hypergraph structure, let's say, that has a topological uh, dimension that actually matches the Hausdorff dimensionality, so we can call that actual space or actual. That's the one that corresponds to our universe. Well, it's it's. I mean, it's obviously preferable for exactly that reason, right? Because right. Uh, you know, all of our current observational evidence suggests that you know we do we don't live in a fractal. You know, we, we the, the the topological dimension and the Hausdorff dimension of our universe are the same. And so, if if it is the case that they're not identical these corrections must presumably be quite small. So we'd be talking about, you know, uh, we're, we're not talking about, you know, you, you have one region of space that's seven dimensional, another another region that's two dimensional. We're talking, as I say, about, you know, one region that's 3.0001 dimensional or something. And uh, the reason is because because of how this expansion works. Um, okay, let me, I won't get too deep into the math, but the, the, uh, the locally, uh, you can uh, you can approximate an exponential with a quadratic, right? If you look closely enough, it's quite hard to distinguish an exponential and a quadratic. Right. Which means that when you think about these, the, this expansion, which has, as I say, the, this exponential contribution from the dimension and this subleading quadratic contribution from the curvature, when you look at very small scales, it's actually quite hard to distinguish between the two. Or in other words, a large change in curvature could equally well be caused... Uh, the, the the effects of a large change in curvature are indistinguishable from the effects of a small change in dimension, at least if you look very locally, because you're basically making a large change in a quadratic and a small change in an exponential. And so uh, because we don't know off the bat, we don't know a priori what the dimension of our spaces is, we have to be open to the possibility, you know, ordinary in, ordinarily in general relativity, you make the assumption that dimension is fixed and curvature varies. Whereas in these models, you, ca- that, you can't make that assumption. You have to at least allow the possibility that both quantities are varying simultaneously. And so, so the, the most physically plausible scenario is that dimension is almost fixed. It, it, it's very, very close to being fixed, but it has these small perturb, uh, you know, there, there are small disturbances in, in, in various places and, uh, the, and the, that we may be able to measure. And so the kinds of hypergraphs that we're looking at or the kinds of dynamics that we're looking at are 
or looking for are ones that produce those kinds of spaces, ones that, you know, spaces that are well approximated by something which has integer dimensions, but where there are small perturbations. And, and they are, they do exist. And, and they're, they're reasonably common, but not incredibly common. And uh, so it's, it's not, um, so it may be that, that in that sense, our universe may end up being quite special uh, in, in, the, in the sense that it's somewhat distinguished in this space of all possible universes, but we don't, we don't really know how that story will play out yet. Gotcha. Very, very interesting. Well, so, yeah, yeah. Jonathan, Sorry, I, I, uh, Jonathan. <laughs> I've, been, I've been taking up all the questions. <laughs> well, I, I just have, uh, I, like for me, I have uh, this one particular line in the project kind of had me uh, shocked, really, um, because the team lays out what does, you know, like when you say, but like, what does quantum mechanics and GR being similar say about physics? Because y'all make this statement that G, like GR and quantum mechanics are effectively the same. And that was like a little bit shocking to read as a physicist because you're just like, what? How, how, how can you justify that? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so I wanted you to elaborate on that, at, at least for the listeners too, like that hearing that was shocking to me. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, so it's it's a pretty bold statement, right? So, um, yeah, okay. Th there's there's a there's a bit of um, there's quite a lot of sort of stuff underlying that statement for sure. Um, and it's it's it's, it's a little it's bit easy a to make up. it quite. Uh, <laughs> it is because <laughs> sorry, I, it is it is only because I do have more questions about, about yeah yeah. This, but yeah, so yeah 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 sure sure. So okay, here's the here's the basic rundown. So, um, okay, let, let me give a quick explanation of, of how you derive uh, very roughly how you derive gr mm -hmm. sr and gr in these models mm -hmm. so when you have a hypergraph you're applying these rules to it you're replacing bits of hypergraph with other bits of hypergraph so sometimes those rules you can sometimes those rules will have causal dependencies between them so sometimes rule b could only have been applied if rule a had previously been applied and that might happen for instance if rule a produces an edge that's then used in the input of rule b so in other words the input and the output have some have some uh, you know they, they they overlap in some way so that uh you know because the input for b used a hype, used an edge that was produced by the output of a b couldn't have been applied unless a had previously been applied so in that case you can say that there's a causal connection between the between event a and event b or you know rewrite a and rewrite b and so you can construct what we call a causal graph that shows essentially all of these causal connections so each each node is now an event each a rewrite and the causal graph shows the causal dependencies between all those rewrites and that uh, gives you a, a directed graph that um, in a so if the hypergraphs are like approximations to space the causal graphs are like approximations to space time or to be a bit more precise they are approximations to what's called the com the conformal structure of space time so space time has a causal structure it tells you if you look at the light cones in space time they tell you which events can influence which other events and so on and that's exactly what the causal graph tells you it tells you which which of our rewrite events influence which other ones so it, it's kind of a minimal model for space time. And then, if you and then you can it, using a sort of using the the sort of process I defined before uh, or I, I mentioned before, which is just you know transitioning from this kind of discrete molecular dynamics like stuff to the continuum equations, uh, you can derive a continuum theory of these causal graphs under some assumptions. So if you assume certain things about the rewriting dynamics, specifically if you assume uh, well, if you assume a that the uh, hypergraph converges to something that's finite dimensional 
and you assume that uh, that the rewrites are random in the sense that, oh, okay, to be more precise, that they are weakly ergodic, which essentially just means that, that you know that there's no kind of there's no bias in how the rewriting occurs. Yeah, um, and that's the same as that's the same as saying that uh, in molecular dynamics you need to have molecular chaos. You can't just have, you you can't have all the molecules like drifting in one direction or something. Yeah. Um, and you make this additional assumption, which is what we call causal invariance, that is essentially. Uh, a translation of Lorentz invariance or general covariance, but to the discrete setting. And that just says that the causal graph, the causal structure that you get is the same, regardless of the order in which you apply the events. So sometimes you might apply the events and you get, you might, I mean, you might apply the events in a different order and you get a completely different sequence of hypergraphs with a different causal structure. And those we know cannot, th those kinds of rules can't be compatible with special relativity. So to get special relativity, we have to enforce this constraint that the causal structure is always preserved when you change the rewriting order. And that's like saying that the conformal structure of space-time is preserved under changes of reference frame, which is exactly what special relativity says. Right, right. Um, and so from those three assumptions, it turns out that's sufficient to define, uh, to derive general relativity, to define the, to, to, to derive the Einstein field equations. And the way that that happens is you, um, well, you essentially, you, you do it a lot like with the continuum theory. You, you write down essentially a sum over curvatures, over, over Ricci scalars. Um, and that then you take the limit as this causal graph becomes infinite. And then that sum over these Ricci scalars converges to an integral. Because you, because of this ergodicity assumption, you can switch out this discrete sum for an integral once you take the infinite limit, and that integral is exactly the Einstein-Hilbert action of general relativity, which is the action integral from which you get the Einstein field equations. And that's that's the basic rundown of the of, of the derivation. There's a lot of technical detail which we can sure. fill in if we, if you're interested, but that's <laughs> that's the idea. Okay, so then you've got quantum mechanics. So this is this is where it gets a little so slightly more abstract, but hopefully not too much more abstract. So um, I already mentioned that you can have the situation where applying the rules in a slightly different order leads to a slightly different hypergraph. Mm -hmm. So in reality, you don't just have one possible history. It's not like there's a linear trajectory from one hypergraph to the next to the next. Because there are many different rewriting orders and there's no canonical rewriting order, just like there's no preferred reference frame in, in our universe as far as we know. Uh, in general, you don't get a single evolution history. You get a tree of possible histories. Or actually, to be a bit more precise, it's, it's, it's more complicated than a tree because not only can these branches of history diverge, they can also merge again because the hypergraphs can just accidentally become the same. So you actually get this very complicated sort of bush-like structure that we call a multi-way system or a multi-way evolution graph. And when you're first confronted, so, that, so at first we thought this was a bug of the formalism, that it's like, okay, we don't get a unique history, evolution history, we get all these kind of different ones. And we tried to figure out ways to make this problem go away. But we later realized that may, it may have been a feature, that that is, um, in quantum mechanics, you also have this notion of, you know, alternative histories, right? So in, in the, at least in the, in the mathematical framework of quantum mechanics, what it means when you have anti-commuting variables is that essentially any observations that take place of, of those variables must take place on, on different branches of history. And so from taking that idea to its logical conclusion, this is where you get the so-called many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics that, that Hugh Everett kind of pioneered. And so this notion of a multi-way system of many possible evolution histories for the, for the hypergraph seems very many worlds like, right? So it seems like this may be giving us something that's a bit quantum mechanical. So the question is, can you make that a bit more precise? Can you make that correspondence more, more formal? And the answer s s turns out to be yes. So in quantum mechanics, when you're doing, 
you know, when you're doing the, when you're dealing with the mathematical structure of quantum mechanics, you are doing everything in relation to these Hilbert's what are called Hilbert spaces, these abstract spaces of quantum states. And there are certain algebraic operations you can do on Hilbert spaces. Like you can you can take the tensor product of two Hilbert spaces, which just means that you're sort of combining two quantum systems together to make a composite system. Or you can uh, you can take what's called the adjoint of a Hilbert space, which essentially just means you're playing time in the other direction. Or you can take the dual and, and things like this. There's a whole list of these things you can do. And uh, our multiway systems also have an algebraic structure to them. Uh, you can take two multiway systems and you can take their tensor product or you can take the multiway system and you can reverse all the arrows so that time runs in the other in, in, you know, the other way. Mm -hmm. And the question is, are those algebraic operations really the same as the algebraic operations that you do for Hilbert, in Hilbert spaces for quantum mechanics? And what we were able to do using some fancy categorical methods was to show that actually the answer is yes, that the, that the axioms satisfied by the algebra of multiway systems are the same as the axioms satisfied by the algebra of Hilbert spaces, which means that actually there is a, a direct like one-to-one -one correspondence between concepts in quantum mechanics and concepts in multiway systems. Okay, that's already kind of interesting. So then the obvious question is, well, if we know that the continuum theory of these causal graphs, as I say, under these assumptions that you have finite dimensions, you have random, essential, you know, randomness in the rules, and you have uh, causal invariance, we get this continuous, we get these continuous equations, which are the Einstein field equations. The the obvious question is, what are the continuous equations for the multiway system? And okay, this derivation is everything I've talked about so far is stuff that we've actually been able to prove. What I am about to say has not yet been made mathematically rigorous. But it seems to be true on the basis of computer experiments. So I just want to make I want to make that clear that this is not the, the, the statement I'm about to make is, is not proven. It just seems to be correct empirically. Don't but sue it him. seems to be. <laughs> Sorry, <go laughs> right, <ahead>. exactly. <laughs> yeah. Right. So it seems that the that the continuum equations or the okay. The same argument that gives you the Einstein-Hilbert action in the causal graph, if you apply the same arguments to the multiway system, appears to give you the path integral of quantum mechanics. Um, so, so in in that sense, th there are these two action principles that we know in th that we know in fundamental physics, right? There's Einstein-Hilbert that gives you GR, and there's the path integral that gives you QM, uh, or in the, in the relativistic case that gives you QFT. And this, the, the, what we mean when we say that it seems GR and QM are really the same theory is that the, it appears the same mathematical argument that gives you the Einstein-Hilbert action for the causal graph gives you the path integral for free in the multiway system, um, and and that therefore these two action integrals are just, they are representing the same idea, just applied to two different, applied at two different levels of the model, one at the level of the causal structure, and one at the level of the multiway structure. Um, Interesting. Now, actually presenting a rigorous derivation, okay, <clears throat> quantum field theory doesn't even have a rigorous derivation of the path integral yet. Right. So, you know, ordinary, and, and, and that's been going for like nearly 100 years. Right. So uh, we, it suffices to say we don't have a, de a rigorous derivation of the path integral either, um, but it's something that we're trying to work towards. And, and, and But as I say, initial numerical data seems to, seems to suggest it is ultimately just the same action principle that gives you both QM and GR. Sorry, that was a very long answer. But no, that was, it's, that's a very that's good answer. answer. No, it's very good because... Um... When you mentioned the multi-way uh, multi space, um, you do bring it up in, in, in the topic of discussing quantum mechanics in this uh, technical uh, work. How I mean, I was kind of shocked to see that it gives rise to the uncertainty principle. Uh, with it has to do with commutivity or commutation rules and and how you y'all map it to a certain space and stuff. It 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 was all sort of rattling. 
um, <laughs> for me. But yeah, that was a very nice uh, explanation, though. I mean, damn, bro, that's big if true. That's yeah. all I gotta say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for me, it was it was how could you say something so controversial yet so brave? I, I was I was really floored by it. But um, the other thing that I kind of wanted to uh, ask you was. Um, like is the abstraction to to just this level of information structures or like information constructs seemingly more important than the actual physics you think wow that's an interesting that's an interesting question mm-hmm. um at some le- i mean okay it's going to sound slightly heretical to say this sure i think the answer is i think you're right i think the answer is yes i think um in many ways the most important. Okay, um, I I, I want to. I don't want to say anything that sounds too strong. This You've is already your described opinion. that. Just say this is my opinion. Yeah, that's all you got to say. It's fine. We'll we'll, we'll shield off the so, haters, yeah, John. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I I don't want to be too controversial. I mean, so, so I don't yet. Okay. It is not yet clear whether this is going to yield um, sort of whether this general approach is going to yield significant advances in fundamental physics. Uh, I think it, I think it is. And I think it, I think stuff is looking really promising. Uh, but obviously we, we can't know that for certain until we actually have an experimental prediction and it gets validated or falsified or whatever. Um, so for the time being, the best we can say is that what we've got is a really interesting and very rich and very beautiful mathematical structure that appears to have very, very bizarre, uh, formal, analogies with fundamental physics right so so at the very it's okay it's a bit like what may be happening okay the worst case scenario is that it may be a bit like uh what is called kaluza klein theory in physics which you guys may, may well have heard of right so so kaluza klein theory this kind of predecessor I, have you guys done a podcast on it or no we it's on our list actually a very very brief <laughs> like barely we mentioned it we yeah. mentioned it yeah Right, right. So, so yeah. So, as you guys will know, and as listeners to the podcast will know, right? It was it was a kind of string theory predecessor where you just, um, you know, the, you you say, okay, gravity. We get gravity from curvature in four dimensional space time. Maybe we get other forces from curvatures in higher dimensions. So you go to like five dimensions and you see, oh, you get electromagnetism, and it's like, wow, that's amazing. That's a really interesting analogy, formal analogy between GR and electromagnetism. Turns out that it's not physical. Because you you may, you end up massively mispredicting like uh, certain properties of the electron, but still it's an interesting mathematical connection that then led to a bunch of interesting physics. In the worst case, that may be what's happening with this model. That that is, it may be that this is not quite the right way to think about the foundations of physics. It may be a bit like Kaluza-Klein theory uh, that you know we, we will get a lot of stuff right, and then somewhere we'll mispredict the mass of the electron or something, and and the theory will come crumbling down. But just like Kaluza-Klein theory got absorbed into this other program. And it turned out it was a kind of fruitful way of thinking about things. It just kind of had to it needed some tweaking. Uh, the same thing may be happening here that we, we've got something that has surprising formal connections to the foundations of physics, uh, but it ends up being absorbed as part of some larger program that may happen. Um, I don't want to take bets on what the probabilities are, but that, that's that's at least one possibility. So the question you ask is, is a really very interesting one of, of th- therefore, what is the most interesting thing? Is it the detailed physics connections? Or is it somehow this more this more philosophical angle that is it is fruitful to think about physics in these purely informational or computational terms? 
And if I'm being brutally honest with you, I think the answer is it's it's the latter, right? That the, the more interesting, more interesting than any one detailed physics connection, is the fact that what I think we're really learning by discovering that by you know investigating this formalism is that uh, thinking about physics in terms of computations, in terms of ideas like algorithmic complexity or you know graph theory or uh, you know computability or, or uh, you know computational complexity, th those kinds of ideas, they actually do have a role to play in fundamental physics. That is a really important point to make. And um, again, just like with uh, discrete space, other approaches to quantum gravity are also reaching the same conclusion, right? So there's this whole, uh, you, you, I mean, you guys are probably aware, there's this there's a sort of um, a program in, in fundamental physics right now called the it from qubit kind of idea, which is this, like, this notion that somehow there's a deep connection between uh, qubits, that is quantum information theory, and, you know, things like the structure of space-time. So this is an idea that kind of has originated in string theory and in ideas like the like gauge gravity duality, ADS-CFT correspondence, where suddenly people are now realizing that you can compute uh, things about black holes, things about gravity, by looking at essentially quantum information theory on the boundary of the of the black hole, and then things like that. So, so you you can you can do like entanglement uh, entropy calculations, which are really a computational idea, and infer things about gravity, which seems really crazy. Yeah. And I think basically, I don't think physics has really absorbed that idea completely yet. The idea that these purely computational information theoretic ideas actually have physical consequences. And this model is kind of the most extreme version of that in that if this model is actually correct, it means that all of physics basically is a result of information theory and computation. And I think, yeah, um, Juan, that's a really excellent point that you make, that this is, in some sense, that is the single most interesting thing about this. No, for sure, because I do see, you, you see branches of physics reaching sort of, uh, like statistical mechanics has, has been, I mean, famously uh, reached this point uh, or, or sort of played with this point of information theory uh, and everything, and so I'm like, okay, quantum mechanics oh, you is mean also like the Shannon information yeah, theory, yeah, okay, yeah. and uh, and how in the app like t remove the physical properties from the from I guess the the situation system or something or the system, mm -hmm. and you you and, and just leave it to the abstraction. Um, you get something that I feel is more fundamental or seems more fundamental. And no, and, and I mean like the looking at the hypergraphs in these multi-way systems, uh, it, it's just, I, I do, it makes, it made me ruminate on that. And so yeah, I thought I'd ask you about it, but yeah, great answer. I, it, it was just interesting to, to see. Yeah. I thought that was a very nice answer. And also, um, I guess Jonathan, I wanted, I guess Jonathan, I wanted to just say, um, to put a petition out there, um, I think you should change the uh, project to the Wolfram Garrard project. Just saying. <laughs> uh, so I, it's I should clarify. It's you know there are there are more people than just myself and Stephen working on this. So, so this is um, you know okay the okay it's perhaps worth mentioning just a little bit about the history. So um, you know as you guys know, and I think you mentioned on the on the last podcast, right? I mean, Stephen in another era was a kind of was a theoretical particle physicist and, and uh, a, a, you know, a reasonably kind of high-flying one, but eventually he kind of, he bailed on academia to go and start Wolfram Research and build Mathematica and things, which was probably a better use of his time than continuing doing particle physics. Um, and, but, but he's always kind of maintained this interest in physics and, and, and an interest in kind of science and computational method more generally. And so uh, in 2002, he sort of proposed, as part of this book that he published called A New Kind of Science, he um, proposed that this might be a fruitful approach to doing physics, this idea of thinking of space in terms of networks and hypergraphs and, and things like that, and thinking of 
dynamics in terms of their, their substitution rules. And he kind of laid out in rough terms how that might work, and he kind of left it there. And, and I, think he's, I think he sort of expected that people would take this up and run with it. But nobody really did. And, and so for, you know, for, like, for nearly 20 years, it was kind of, it just stayed there you know, in that book, and, 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 and that idea never really got off the ground. Um, but then, yeah, so then what, what was it? Two years ago, uh, myself uh, and another sort of young physicist guy, Max Piskanov, and Stephen kind of, we decided that if anyone was going to do this project, it kind of had to be us, and it basically had to be now. And so uh, that was when we sort of started working on this in earnest. And after we announced the project back in April, uh, since then, loads of other people have kind of have joined forces and ha- helped contribute both to programming and, for, and doing like crowdsourced computing and to helping us, you know, do research and write papers and things. So like, um, okay, to, I mean, to, to mention a few specific people, like uh, the, these these quantum mechanical derivations I was talking about before, you know, like connecting the algebra of multi-way systems to the algebra of, of, Hil- of finite dimensional Hilbert spaces. That wasn't just me. That was, a, that was a, you know, like it was a collaboration between myself, uh, Monogna Namaduri, Xerxes Asawala, um, uh, some other people. Um, there's uh, folks like Hatem Al-Shadlawi, who's also been helping out with kind of formalizing a bunch of the connections to topology and homotopy theory. There's now, you know, we, we have about, uh, I think on the order of about 50 actually uh, affiliates kind of uh, and students working on on various aspects. So thank you for your, you know, th- thank you for the, the very kind suggestion, but it's it's important to note that it's, this is not just myself, it's not just Stephen, it's, it's, there's a large team of people, uh, you know, doing these things. Well, Jonathan, I gotta say, I think you guys are doing really good work, man, and I think you are um, very good at explaining um, what's actually going on with the um, Wolfram Project, and I mean, I would love to hear more, maybe even, you know, if we can have you for another podcast at some point, um, we would definitely love it. I think this was a, a good, a good, a good thing to um, relate to the audience here. Yeah, for sure. But since we're coming on time, I got a little scared here because uh, John, I just saw a low memory usage on computer, <laughs> and I don't. Yeah, so we, we, we want to make sure we save this, uh, yeah, this podcast. But it, it was great having you on, Jonathan, and this helped clarify a lot of things. I think yeah. you both me and Terrence. So yes, yes, you for sure have turned me to to the Wolfram team a little bit more today for sure <laughs> okay this is some victory switch to yeah for yeah yeah and uh, like if if the listeners i'm pretty sure the listeners will want to see more and i think uh they'll be excited to hear more maybe we could flesh out a little bit more of the project because mm-hmm. i i barely scratched the surface i didn't even ask all the questions i wanted to ask so yeah i've got like 50 more <laughs> <laughs> so any you know hopefully we we won't be bugging you too much for another uh for another episode like this but, but yeah, yeah at some point we'll get it we'll get him again yeah. hopefully well th- this was a pleasure no th- thank you it would be it'd be wonderful to do a follow-up sometime and uh, but yeah th- i mean thanks again for inviting me the, the questions were, were great and this was yeah this was a lot of fun so thanks thanks again cool all right thank you jonathan and guys remember to like share comment and subscribe if you haven't already uh check out their websites once again guy guys eigenbros.com eigenbros on instagram eigenbros on twitter and eigenbros2 on tiktok and then, of course, guys, follow uh, or join the Patreon if you can. It's patreon.com slash eigenbros if you want to support your boys. And uh, we thank you so much, Jonathan. It's great talking with you, man. Thanks a lot. Cool.